the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Monday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is producing. Justin Mansfield is engineering for the day. Appreciate that very much, Justin. Well, today we're going to talk with Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She is the daughter of Anne Graham Lotz, and the two co-authored the book Jesus Followers: Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. That's coming up in the second hour of today's program. Also, did you know Ralph Carmichael passed away? We'll tell you more about that in the second hour of today's program as well. But we'll begin by taking a look at some of the day's news. Well, Alec Baldwin was. Um, given a prop gun by a crew member who had a previous safety complaint against him as fingers are pointing who's to blame for the events that took place on Monday, or I guess it was just a couple of days ago. Well, the rust crew member who reportedly gave Alex Baldwin or Alec Baldwin, the prop gun that killed cinematographer um, Halina Hutchins was previously the subject of a safety complaint. Crew members Maggie Gall said in a statement to the Associated Press that she filed an internal complaint with the executive producer of Hulu's Into the Dark series in 2019 over concerns about assistant director Dave Hall's behavior on the set. Gall said in an email Sunday that uh, Hall's disregarded uh, safety protocols for weapons and pyrotechnics and tried to continue filming after a crew member had slipped into a diabetic fugue state. He didn't maintain a safe working environment, Gold told uh, NBC News. Sets were almost always allowed to become increasingly claustrophobic. No established fire lanes, exits blocked, safety meetings were non-existent. Well, Baldwin fired a prop gun on the New Mexico set of the film Rust on Thursday, killing 42-year-old Helena Hutchins and wounding the director, Joel Souza, who was standing behind her. Well, Souza has since been released from a hospital. It was previously reported that um, Halls handed Baldwin a firearm, mistakenly announcing at the time that it was a cold gun, which means, I guess in movie talk, that it was an unloaded weapon. Instead, it was loaded with live rounds, according to the records. Well, the gun Baldwin used was one of three that a firearm specialist or armorer uh, had set on a cart outside the building where a scene was being rehearsed. According to court records, Halls grabbed the gun off a cart and handed it to Baldwin, according to records. There's some discussion now about uh, prohibiting the use of real firearms on sets. This doesn't happen very often, but I suppose if you're the subject of one, it happens um, often enough. Well, in other developments, the gun fired by Alec Baldwin in the accidental death was uh, used for fun by the crew offset. And Alec Baldwin had an emotional meeting with the family of uh, Helena Hutchins, her husband and son, following the accidental shooting and has been inconsolable after the deadly Rust movie set shooting, canceling other projects. Now, some people are exploiting the situation and pointing the finger at Alec Baldwin, who's made some very uh, unflattering uh, comments about police officers and firearms. But it seems to me it's inappropriate to do that at this time, at least if you 
hold to the Christian faith. This might not be the right time to make that point. Well, the parents of Brian uh, Laundrie may have uh, just missed discovering their son themselves. His parents unknowingly walked just a few yards away from locations in a Florida nature preserve where police found their son's personal belongings and his remains on Wednesday morning. When Chris and Roberta Laundrie left their home before sunrise on Wednesday, only two journalists were present. A Fox Digital reporter who followed in a separate vehicle and a Fox News Channel cameraman who remained on the street or on their street. They arrived at the uh, uh, environmental park entrance at about 725 a.m. and two members of the law enforcement arrived wearing hiking attire in a separate pickup truck. One later identified himself as a member of the Northport Police Department and the other works for the FBI. Well, the men said nothing at the park entrance and followed the laundries uh, from a distance of no less than 50 feet. There were no other people present at the time, and although later that morning at least three bystanders came through the area, a man walking his dog, a woman walking her dog, and a man on a bicycle, all of them were encountered under the power lines outside of the trail where investigators found Brian Laundrie's remains that morning. Well, he was the sole person of interest in the strangling of his former fiance, Gabby Petito, whose remains investigators found on the 19th of September at a Wyoming campsite weeks after the couple had stayed there. In other developments, uh, Brian Laundrie's uh, autopsy is inconclusive about the cause of death. Further study is planned, but we don't know what happened. Uh, there's some suspicion that he took his own life, but not known at this point. Well, President Biden got some bad news from a 2024 poll out of a crucial primary state. This week, uh, weekly column on the next race uh, for the White House usually zeroes in on the burgeoning contest for the 2024 GOP presidential nomination. But a poll released in recent days that spotlighted President Biden's flagging support should he run for reelection in 2024 in New Hampshire, the state that for a century held the first primary in the presidential nominating calendar peaked interest. Well, 37 percent of likely Democratic primary voters in 2024 questioned in the University of New Hampshire latest Granite State survey said that they'd vote uh, vote for Biden if the primary were held today, a drop of 12 points from the uh, previous poll in July. Fifty two percent of those questions said they were unsure, up to nine percent, with 11 uh, percent saying they'd vote for another candidate. Asked if they'd like to see the president run unopposed in 2024 or face a primary challenge. 45 percent said they'd like to see Biden face a primary challenger up 16 points from July. Those preferring the president to run unopposed in the next Democratic presidential primary dropped nine points from July to 29 percent in the latest survey, which was conducted mid-October. Well, the latest numbers from the first in the nation presidential primary state come as the president's approval ratings have taken a beating the past two and a half months in the wake of the president's much-criticized handling of the turbulent U.S. exit from Afghanistan and following a surge in COVID-19 cases due to the spread of the highly infectious Delta variant as the nation continues to combat the uh, Pandemic, the worst pandemic to strike the globe in a century. Well, asked in March at the first formal news conference of his presidency about the 2024 plans, Biden said, my answer is yes, I plan on running for reelection. That's my expectation. It came as a surprise to many, believing he was a placeholder for the next Democrat uh, uh, nominee. Well, hashtag arrest Fauci is trending on Twitter as the doctor faces criticism for the controversial virus research and testing on dogs. Now, abortion is okay, even late term abortions, but don't test on dogs because that's unconscionable. 
Just saying. Nancy Pelosi briefly forgot Donald Trump's name on CNN's State of the Nation. Now, keep in mind, she's what, in her 80s? I'm impressed that she can do a lot. of. I don't agree with a lot of the stuff she does, but I'm impressed that she can pull it off. Forgetting Donald Trump's name after she uttered it nonstop for the four years he was in the White House. I suppose it's a little bit questionable. But if I can remember things as well as she does at 80 plus, I guess I'll be happy. Missouri was hit by tornadoes, quarter sized hail and strong winds on Sunday. And of course, it left its mark. And a California jobs report is anything but golden. U.S. companies bet shoppers will keep paying higher prices. Of course, they won't have an option. Millions of workers are staying home to watch young children as daycares are struggling. And Rhode Island is set to be the first state to pilot safe injection sites for drug users. And we're talking about the illicit use of drugs. And workers plan to strike over McDonald's handling of sex harassment allegations, or rather, mishandling. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're going to take a break, and we'll continue to wind our way through some of the day's news and look forward to a conversation with Rachel Ruth Lotz-Wright, co-author of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Speaking of memories, I want to encourage you to make a weekend to remember because, well, they're coming right here to the Portland metro area. Could your marriage use, I don't know, a boost? Uh, Family Life's Weekend to Remember is a great opportunity to make an impact on your marriage. It's going to be November 19th through the 21st at the Red Lion Hotel on the River. And by the way, I love the way they organize the weekend where you actually have time to spend talking with your spouse about the things you've just heard. Uh, It's just it's done very, very well. Uh, Again, um, you can improve communication, resolve conflict in biblical ways, or at least learn how to do that. Increase your commitment to your marriage resulting in deeper intimacy. Find out more about Weekend to Remember, you guessed it, at kpdq.com. Great resource. Well, the GOP calls for a Fauci investigation and resignation after uh, admitting the uh, controversial gain-of-function research funded by the U.S. Well, GOP is calling for the investigation and resignation Uh, It's escalated following this week's uh, uh, revelation, I should say, that the National Institutes of Health funded gain-of-function research on the coronavirus. Well, the controversial research involves artificially engineering an animal virus in a laboratory, setting to um, further examine how it becomes more easily transmissible and deadly to humans. Now, why on earth you'd want to develop that um, without responding to something that develops naturally It's a measure that Fauci told lawmakers was not utilized by the National Institutes of Health. Well, another story looked at the accusations that Fauci funded experiments on dogs, and that has really uh, raised the ire of many because they care about dogs in many cases more than they do about other people. In case this isn't enough, bad uh, Fauci news. He says the controversial vaccine for children will be uh, here next month. Well, China pulled uh, Celtics basketball games over a player's pro-Tibet statements. They can't uh, endure any criticism at all. Uh, And as Cantor called the President Xi a brutal dictator uh, on Twitter, he said, Xi Jinping and the Chinese Communist Party, if someone has to teach you a lesson, I will never apologize for speaking the truth. You cannot buy me. You cannot scare me. You cannot silence me. Bring it on. Those are very bold words. I'm not sure what the NBA thinks about them. Uh, Mark Thiessen uh, referred to him as a hero. Donald Trump Jr. said this guy has more guts than all the virtue signaling woke athletic uh, activists combined. Also, he's not a Trump fan, but I have uh, to 
uh, call balls and strikes. Or from the State Department, 363 Americans remain abandoned in Afghanistan and they want to get out. 363 Americans remain abandoned in Afghanistan and they want to get out more than they've been reporting to the public for the past month and a half. Well, National School Boards Association has apologized for their letter linking protesting parents to domestic terrorists, something the attorney general Merrick Garland used to get the FBI involved. Well, the Washington Post is feigning being shocked that a sniper or rather a singer not quite the same thing, that a singer who opposes vaccine mandates was allowed to sing the national anthem because they should be um, sent away to re-education camps where they can infect one another and just die off, apparently. Well, Travis Tritt is one of millions of Americans who oppose the mandate, and he sang the national anthem at Saturday's Dodgers-Braves game. The Washington Post found that outrageous. Molly Hemingway points out, a guy who cares about liberty to sing national anthem, News at 11. Hmm. Well, Twitter suspended a Republican representative's account for noting the science of transgendered assistant secretary of health. Congressman Banks noted that assistant secretary of health Rachel Levine is, in fact, a man. Biologically, that's a true statement. From Axios, Twitter suspended the account of the representative for violating its hateful conduct policy after he intentionally misgendered assistant secretary of health Rachel Levine, uh, the first openly transgender Senate confirmed Federal official. Now, don't you in order to be transgender, you have to live the life of something other than what your biology says. So making the statement is doesn't conflict with anything. You're male, female. If you're transgender, you decide I want to live as other than what my biology says. So it was a statement of fact Uh, from Sean Davis. Biology isn't bigotry. You Stalinist clowns referring to. Um, the, the critics, men are men and women are women, and no amount of costumes, surgery, or Soviet wordplay will ever change that. Well, the battle lines have been drawn. Well, Speaker Pelosi's donors cashed in with hundreds of millions of taxpayer funds from the story of National Park and House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's San Francisco district that is set to receive $200 million from taxpayers here and everywhere else, includes several Pelosi donors on its trust uh, board. It's been learned. House Democrats proposed $3.5 trillion spending bill. It includes $200 million airmarked for the uh, Presidio National Park, which has drawn sharp criticism from Republicans. The Presidio Trust in San Francisco oversees the National Park, and per the legislation that established the trust, it must be financially self-sustained. Well, at least eventually. Well, Florida's top health official has been booted from a meeting for not wearing a mask. The story clearly takes the side of the um, state senator with a serious condition who wanted him to wear a mask. Kyrie Irving fans stormed Barclays Center to support the NBA star's stand against vaccine mandates. The story includes several videos of the scene. Fans clashed with police as they stood in support of this athlete who said no to the vaccine. Bipartisan legislators are demanding answers from Anthony Fauci on cruel puppy experiments. And the federal deficit hit $2.8 trillion in fiscal year 2021, the second largest in history. And that uh, promises to be much higher if the president's um, plans succeed. The State Department has been in contact with 363 Americans in Afghanistan, far exceeding the administration's earlier estimates. And the Biden migrant surge has set an all-time record for most arrests at the southern border. Meanwhile, an organized migrant caravan is moving toward the U.S., surging past 
Mexican forces. Some have gone so far as to say they are being underwritten by the Mexican government. An airstrike killed a senior al-Qaeda leader in Syria. Well, in the latest example of moving the goalposts, the CDC director says we may need to update our definition of fully vaccinated as booster eligibility increases. And National Institutes of Health quietly edited a section of their website on gain-of-function research. It's been uh, rather controversial. Janet Yellen signals trouble uh, over what was referred to as transitory, now long-term, inflation. And Saudi Arabia dubiously pledged a 2060 target of net zero emissions. Well, YouTube and Instagram banned the Let's Go Brandon song. I'm not even sure. Congresswoman, um, or rather Congressman Jim Banks, has been locked out of uh, Twitter uh, for his uh, writing, scientifically accurate observations. And despite climate change fear-mongering, a study shows the Great Barrier Reef is actually growing and growing quickly. Governor Brian Kemp mocked Major League Baseball and Stacey Abrams over the boycott as Atlanta preps for the World Series. Well, on this day in history, 1910, America the Beautiful with words by Catherine Lee Bates and music by Samuel A. Ward is first published. 1917, the Bolsheviks under Vladimir Ilyich Lenin seize power in Russia. 1935, a major hurricane strikes Haiti, leaving more than 2,000 people dead and many thousands homeless and hungry. 1954, a U.S. cabinet meeting is televised for the first time. 1955, the microwave oven for home use is introduced by the Tappan Company. Thank you, Tappan Company. 1964, Minnesota Vikings defensive end Jim Marshall recovers a fumble and runs 66 yards the wrong way into his own end zone for a safety. Despite the gaffe, the Vikings defeat San Francisco 49ers 27-22. to I actually remember hearing talk of it the year it happened. 1971, the United Nations recognizes the Communist People's Republic of China and expels the nationalist Chinese government of Taiwan. 2000, AT&T Corporation announces it will restructure into four separately traded companies, consumer, business, broadband and wireless. And finally, on this day in history, 2001, the Senate sends President Bush the USA Patriot Act, a package of anti-terror measures giving police sweeping new powers to search people's homes and business records secretly and to eavesdrop on telephone and computer conversations. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, we're going to talk with Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She is the co-author, along with her mother, Anne Graham Lotz, of the book, Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation, full of stories that will make you laugh and cry, but also encourage parents and grandparents how they can pass their faith along to the next generation. That's coming up in the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, the National School Boards Association finally sent a letter to its members Friday apologizing for its infamous letter sent to the Biden administration last month in which it called for action against protesting parents it labeled domestic terrorists. Well, that letter was used by the Biden administration to justify Attorney General Merrick Garland's creation of an FBI task force supposedly designed to address violent threats against school officials. 
On behalf of NSBA, we regret and apologize for the letter, the NSBA wrote. There was no justification for some of the language included in the letter. However, the NSBA did not call for the Biden administration to reverse course on the Justice Department's actions to create the FBI task force. In other words, the apology letter ended up as little more than a we're sorry we were uh, you were offended non-apology. The NSBA adds uh, we should have um, had a better process in place to allow for consultation on the communication of this significance. That's putting it mildly. Well, the timing of the letter appears to be significant and very political. Virginia's Loudoun County has been at the center of national debate over education, but also of the Virginia gubernatorial race, which has uh, entered its final week with Republican candidate Glenn Youngkin having entirely closed the gap with uh, Democrat Terry McAuliffe, who has served as governor there before. Well, Youngkin has made up ground by pounding McAuliffe over his comments, dismissing parents' rights to have a say in what their children are taught. Youngkin has a great effect um, uh, campaign on parents' rights against that of teachers' unions and the leftist agenda of the political elites, and it's resonated there, apparently. Well, furthermore, the NSBA's apology also appears to be aimed at shoring up eroding national support as nearly 20 state school boards are moving to cut ties with the national organization. However, on this count, the apology may come a little too late and doesn't go far enough. One mother and member of the nonprofit organization Moms for Liberty called the apology phony. If they were really sorry about what was happening to parents and calling us domestic terrorists, they would have investigated and questioned these school boards to see if there was any validity to any of what parents are actually saying. Another said there is no excuse for their dereliction of duty. They are supposed to be supporting parents. Finally, the NSBA reportedly may have communicated with Joe Biden's White House prior to sending the infamous domestic terrorist letter. Did the White House collude with the organization, forming a narrative, and then use it to pressure the Department of Justice into creating an FBI task force with the aim of silencing parents, protesting school mask mandates, and radical indoctrination in schools? Well, in his testimony on Capitol Hill last Thursday, which was fascinating to watch. Um, Merrick Garland, he denied that he had any communication with the White House prior to his creation of the task force. In fact, he had no communication with anything other than the letter requesting the FBI's um, involvement or the Department of Justice involvement. Following his testimony, several members of the Commission on Civil Rights requested that he send them specific examples of harassment, intimidation and threats of violence that he alluded to as justification for his decision to create uh, the FBI task force. Might the NSBA apology also be intended as a means to take the heat off of Garland? It's a rhetorical question, but it does certainly suggest that may, in fact, have had some influence. Well, a Massachusetts public school system is actively promoting racially segregated student groups and a biased reporting program that encourages students to report instances of their peers' uh, biases to school officials for disciplinary action, according to a lawsuit that was filed last week. Well, Parents Defending Education filed the lawsuit against the Boston-area Wellesley Public Schools on Tuesday in the U.S. District Court for the District of Massachusetts. A lawsuit that specifically targets both the racially segregated student groups and the school's speech policies. Nearly seven decades of Supreme Court precedent has made two things clear, the lawsuit says. Public schools cannot segregate students by race and students do not abandon their First Amendment rights at the schoolhouse gate. Wellesley Public Schools is flouting both of these principles. 
End quote. While the school system has held multiple racially segregated events for students, the parents defending education lawsuit said, describing how the school district's equity director lamented that the school didn't keep a list of students sorted by race and ordered white students not to come to certain events. Not only did the school host these racially segregated events, the lawsuit said, it also refused to host a Jewish students affinity group or to fly Israeli or thin blue line flags as a gesture of viewpoint diversity when parents complained about Black Lives Matter flags as at various schools. Well, the lawsuit also alleges that Wellesley Public Schools displayed similar disregard for students' First Amendment rights through a policy that punishes biased student speech including any student speech that is offensive, has an impact on others, treats another person differently or demonstrates a conscious or unconscious bias, which is precisely what they were uh, promoting. Clearly, Wellesley schools did not think anyone would hold them accountable or else they would not have pursued such a discriminatory policy. Parents Defending Education President Nicole Niley said, speaking to the Daily Signal, school administrators had felt invincible for too long, but parents across the country are fighting back. A child's race should never disqualify them from participating in school events. Wellesley's public schools declined to comment on the lawsuit. Um, when asked, well, the school district's biased speech policies over um, uh, over broad, vague restrictions on student speech empowered certain students to punish classmates who express unpopular views. According to the lawsuit, one member of the Parents Defending Education, the national grassroots organization behind the lawsuit, is a parent of a former Wellesley Public Schools middle school student. This parent's child reportedly stopped speaking in class after watching other students repeatedly report their classmates to Wellesley Public Schools authorities for engaging in biased speech when they shared their political beliefs. The student was shamed into silence by the policy, according to the lawsuit, and the student's parents watched their child lose all self-confidence and self-esteem during the 2020-2021 school year. The student's parents later reportedly withdrew the student from the school system and opted to pay for private school instead. Well, under Wellesley's public school bias speech policy, a bias incident is a conduct, speech or expression that has an impact but may not involve criminal action and demonstrates conscious or unconscious bias that targets individuals or groups that are part of a federally protected class. A bias incident can also occur if someone treats another person differently or makes an offensive comment because of their membership in a protected group. Now, if you happen to be outside of a protected group and you're uh, made to feel uh, inferior or uh, uh, you're treated differently, that's perfectly fine. But these protected groups would uh, be singled out. Well, it goes on from there and we'll certainly continue to follow that developing story. It's uh, rather interesting how we're going backward. I remember the civil rights movement and how hard um, desegregating uh, education spaces, for example, equal opportunity was the hallmark of that movement. And we're moving precisely the opposite direction today. Well, North Carolina parents are outraged over a team's privileged banner at a high school football game, calling it racist. Well, the banner implied that a Catholic school is privileged and that enraged the parents. Well, North Carolina parents attending a high school football game were stunned by the banner, implying a Catholic high school was privileged and populated with rich white families. Sniff, sniff, you smell that? privilege and there were dollar signs before the p and after the e in privilege and a banner held by cheerleaders from butler high school on friday near charlotte 
Well, the school's football team ran through the banner before the start of the game. Butler was playing against Charlotte Catholic High School, and parents described being outraged that the sign implied their children were privileged. The thing that was so disturbing, said one, was it was children. Melissa Swan is a parent who attended the football game with her son. Whether they are high school, elementary school, or middle school, their children, the administration, the coaches, the athletic director, they had to know it. Well, Swanson said the sign portrays the Catholic school as a rich, white high school. That's not the case by no means. Swanson, whose son is biracial, said of the sign's implication, I am a single mom and I raise my son on my own. We pay for that school and work hard to be there, end quote. Well, other parents voiced outrage on social media, demanding the Charlotte-Mecklenburg School District take action. This was offensive, even racist, and in really poor taste, one person wrote to the local... Um, a television station on the banner. I'm shocked that it was allowed. Does CMS really condone this kind of behavior? Well, squad members and adults uh, responsible for oversight will face consequences as a result of that banner display. School and district officials will offer no specific information about this disciplinary manner, the school district said in a statement to the media. Officials from Butler also apologized to Charlotte Catholic, while cheerleaders from Butler sent an apology letter to their peers at the a Catholic school. We understand how emotions surrounding sports events can sometimes result in actions that do not represent an organization's values, the principal said of the uh, Catholic Charlotte Catholic High School in a statement. It is our hope that everyone will learn from such moments because at the end of the day, we are all one community. It's interesting, though, that the students felt emboldened, maybe inspired by a teacher we don't know. They felt emboldened to display that kind of sign and thought it would be perfectly acceptable, maybe even clever, at a high school game. It's a sad um, commentary on where we stand as a culture at this moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I want to remind you, coming up in the second hour of today's program, we'll talk with Rachel Ruth Lotz-Wright. She's the co-author, along with her mother, Anne Graham Lotz, of the book titled Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation, full of all kinds of stories um, of influence in, the, in future generations. Well, Armstrong Williams makes the point that children's addiction to technology is not only hurting them, but it's hurting the country. And he writes, parents, wake up. Your children are being taken from you without you realizing. And again, he writes, think for a second about the last family dinner you had with your son or your daughter. What were they doing? Were they present in the conversation, enjoying the meal with you, or were their heads stuck in their phones, giggling every now and then? My guess is that is probably the latter. I would hope in an audience like this one, that's less the case than the general population. But he goes on. Our children today are addicted to their phones and technology. Apps like TikTok have poisoned the brains of our future generation. The Wall Street Journal recently did an investigation on the app's algorithm, trying to figure out the effects it has on children. What they found was staggering. After setting up hundreds of accounts as 13-year-olds, they were shown heinous videos of sexual behavior, drugs, eating disorders, and other clips that should not be seen by children. What is worse is that our children are watching these videos for hours and hours per day. Last month, I had an interesting feeling I was sitting 
in $5,000 club seats at the U.S. Open Women's Final surrounded by entrepreneurs and celebrities. This after having traveled in first class to New York and being served free food. The thought that came to me was, wow, this is the life. But then something strange happened. I looked around and all I saw was kids under the age of 21. They were living the life, except for the fact that they were all sitting there on their phones. All I could wonder is... Who is paying for this and what were the kids thinking? I used to believe that the stimulus package and other government handouts were causing people not to work. I was wrong. It's our phones. Our children just want a ticket to freedom with unlimited cash so that they can sit around doing nothing. Their ideal life is not running a successful company or even uh, having a great job, but rather it's traveling on the weekends, drinking, doing drugs and sleeping past noon every day. This is not reality. I know many parents who tell me of their young children's addiction to video games as well. All they want to do is play games where violence is prompted, such as uh, Fortnite and Call of Duty. They're sitting behind their screens for five or more hours per night playing these games. China recently introduced a new law that I actually agree with. Children in China are banned from playing video games during the weekends and are limited to just three hours on week, excuse me, weekdays and are uh, limited to just three hours on weekends. While it may be Decronian, they are attempting to save their youth. Children should not be playing video games for 40 hours a week. That's not real life. While it would uh, be difficult for the U.S. government to mandate this Companies like Microsoft and Sony should implement time limits into their consoles to ensure kids are not living their entire lives in video games. What's the future of this country? What kind of lives will our children be living in 15 to 25 years? I'm not optimistic, truthfully. I'm very sad. The fact is children do not have the capacity to make such decisions as limiting their technology use. Their job is on parents, or that job is, and our parents are failing. Parents, do you feel that you have control over your kids? Many kids today feel so entitled because they have everything at their fingertips, credit cards, phones, anything they want. Our children are too naive to realize what they're doing to themselves. We must help them. You would be hard-pressed to find many avid readers among our youth. Without knowledge, our children have no power. Reading books is at the core of this, not Wikipedia or other websites. Information is right on your phones, yet it is uh, passing us by. We must instill the idea that reading is a good thing and a better way to learn. More so, rather than playing video games or using their phones, children should go out and play sports, hang out with their friends, and enjoy the real world around them. They will wake up in their 30s and realize that they have done nothing with their lives. They will be sad and depressed and wondering where their lives went. Anyway, what will also happen when they run out of money? With no skills or knowledge, they will be left for dust. And the countries around us who prioritize the livelihoods of their kids will leap ahead of us. America is at a crossroads and we are failing. We have lost control of our children and our uh, our ways, and we will suffer from it. We are focused on nuances instead of our flagging youth. President Joe Biden has a real responsibility to set the stage for the coming years. I pray for his success and the success of our youth. Again, our, uh, Armstrong Williams, one of my uh, favorite columnists, writing about how our children's addiction to technology is hurting the country, but more importantly, they're hurting themselves and what the long-term prospects uh, will be. Well, Gallup's latest governance poll reveals that Americans believe the federal government has too much power at 54 percent and that it um, it tries to do too many things at 52 percent. 
Now, also, at least 50 percent of Americans prefer lower taxes and fewer government services. Only 19 percent of Americans want higher taxes and more government services. More Americans typically prefer a limited government role to an active one, think there is too much rather than too little regulation of business and believe the government is too powerful. That's what Gallup said of its survey. Well, then the survey done every year, Gallup asked, do you think the federal government today has too much power, has about the right amount of power or has too little power? Fifty four percent said too much power. Thirty six percent said about the right amount and nine percent said too little. At least half Americans uh, of Americans, I should say, since 2005 have said that the government has too much power, peaking at 60 percent in 2013 and 2015. From 2002 through 2004, in the first few years after 9-11, more Americans believed the federal government had about the right amount of power than believed uh, had too much. Relatively few Americans have ever said the government has too little power. And another question Gallup asked, some people think the government is trying to do too many things that should be left to individuals and businesses. Others think the government should do more to solve our country's problems, which comes closer to your own view. Well, in response, 52 percent, the government said rather the government is doing too much. Forty three percent said the government should do more. All party groups are less likely to uh, now rather than a year ago to favor a more active government role. But independence opinions have changed the most, according to Gallup in 2020. 56% of independents wanted the government to do more to solve problems compared to 38% now. Independents are even less inclined to want a more active government role today than they were in 2019 before the pandemic began when 45% held that view. The same is true for Republicans whose opinions did not show meaningful change last year. When it comes to taxes and government services... Gallup asked, would you rather have more government services if that meant more taxes, less government service in order to reduce taxes or services and taxes about where we have them now? Well, in response, half of the respondents said less government services to reduce taxes. Only 19 percent said more government services if that meant more taxes. Well, in relation to those responses, Gallup reported currently 77 percent of Republicans prefer fewer services and lower taxes, while 15 percent want no change and 7 percent prefer higher taxes and more services. Half of independents prefer lower taxes and fewer services as well, while 33 percent want to keep taxes and services where they are right now. And 16 percent want increases in both. Democrats are mostly split between wanting more services and more taxes at 37 percent and keeping taxes and services where they are now at 40 percent, according to Gallup. Nineteen percent of Democrats prefer lower taxes and fewer services. Well, as for government regulation of business and industry, 43 percent of Americans of all stripes said the government regulates too much. And 30 percent said the right amount. Only 25 percent of Americans said the government regulates business and industry too little. Now, that's uh, rather interesting in view of the dramatic and sweeping changes that are being proposed under the current administration, which, by the way, uh, should be made public by the end of the week. Some sort of vote taken because the deadline was set by the Democrats themselves for the 31st. That's this weekend. Um, that can always be extended. But this is supposed to be uh, D-Day, if you will, in determining how much and what form of the reconciliation and infrastructure bills will ultimately take.
Well, the U.S. military is only marginally prepared to defend America's interests at a time when adversaries are ramping up military capabilities, according to the Heritage Foundation's 2022 Index of U.S. Military Strength. Released, or released rather last Wednesday. The analysis examined each branch of the military as well as America's nuclear capabilities. On the upside, the report determined the Marine Corps and the nation's nuclear capabilities are strong. However, the Air Force and the new Space Force were scored as weak. The Army and Navy were scored as marginal. We're going to have to totally change the way we think of things in Congress and in the private sector as we make a change to these new war fighting uh, capabilities, because war fighting in the future is going to look a lot different than in the past. That's a quote from Representative Mike Rogers. He's a Republican out of Alabama, the ranking member of the House Armed Services Committee. Some of these uh, capabilities, like the Space Force, we don't need people necessarily going through boot camp to learn how to carry a backpack and a rifle, he said. We need some kids who are really good at computer technology and mathematics being able to come in and work for an engineer those satellites. Well, the release of the report comes after China launched a new hypersonic missile in the past week. Meanwhile, Russia, Iran and North Korea have touted advancements in military capabilities as well. Well, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. And in the second hour of the program, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She's the co-author with her mother, Anne Graham Lotz, of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Coming up uh, later in this hour, we're going to talk with Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She is the daughter of Anne Graham Lotz, and the two of them co-authored the book, Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. The book is full of inspiring stories. You'll laugh, you'll cry. But what the purpose of the book is to help parents and grandparents recognize how they can influence and um, make sure that their children and grandchildren carry the faith forward in some creative ways to do just that. When you think about the uh, uh, Ruth and Billy Graham and then her her uh, grandparents on the lot side had a significant influence. So it's just it's a wonderful book. We'll talk with her about that coming up in our next segment. I also want to remind you that October, of course, is Pastor Appreciation Month. And during this month, you can show love to your pastors when you enter the Pastor Appreciation Rest and Relaxation Getaway Giveaway. Now, you can enter for your pastor's chance to win a seven-day getaway for two to the Cove. It's a ministry of the Billy Graham Association in North Carolina. And that gift includes airfare, meals, a $500 Visa gift card, and more. So you can show your pastor you love and appreciate them for the hard work they do. Enter today at kpdq.com. In fact, I would just encourage you to check it out every other day because there's all kinds of stuff that pops up on there that you may not know about unless you're savvy enough to check it out. So I know you are. I just thought I'd mention it. Taking a look at uh, some of the day's news, the CDC director, Rochelle Walensky, said on Friday that the U.S. may need to amend its definition of fully vaccinated against COVID-19 as more Americans become eligible to receive booster shots. Now, it's a bit confusing. We were told, you know, once you get the shot, you can return to normalcy. Well, that didn't happen. And now we're being told, well, you really need the booster. Well, do I need the booster or don't I need the booster? Anyway, now they're going to uh, they're considering, I'll say, redefining what fully vaccinated means. 
This is what she said. Right now, we don't have booster eligibility for all people currently, she said during a White House COVID response team press briefing. So we have not yet changed the definition of fully vaccinated. We will continue to look at this. We may need to update our definition of fully vaccinated in the future. Will it ever end? One wonders. Well, Walensky's uh, comment comes after the Food and Drug Administration authorized booster shots for the Moderna and Johnson & Johnson COVID-19 vaccines on Wednesday of last week. The agency also authorized mixing and maxing, matching rather, COVID-19 vaccines, allowing Americans to receive a different vaccine for their booster shot than their original vaccine. In fact, they're saying now that it might actually be better to do so. Well, the agency had already authorized booster shots of the Pfizer vaccine last month for those who fit into a particular set of criterion. Well, the authorization allows any recipient of the one dose Johnson and Johnson vaccine to receive a second dose of the J&J, Moderna or Pfizer vaccines at least two months after receiving their first shot. Now, for those who previously received the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines, only seniors or people at higher risk of COVID-19 because of underlying medical or workplace conditions are currently eligible to receive a booster shot. So most people aren't even eligible at this point. But as the uh, the goalpost keeps changing, my guess is at some point they're going to insist that people who have the vaccine also receive the booster. A lot of people are starting to draw the line. While President Biden said in August that booster shots would be widely available to Americans in September, the FDA's Vaccine Advisory Committee later voted 16 to 2 against recommending boosters for the general population and 18 to 0 in favor of recommending boosters for people 65 and older or at risk of severe COVID-19. So you've got the president, the politician saying one thing. You have the FDA presumably medical professionals and scientists saying something else. Well, after considering the totality of the available scientific evidence and the deliberations of our advisory committee of independent external experts, the FDA amended the EUA for the Pfizer BioNTech COVID-19 vaccine to allow for a booster dose in certain populations, such as healthcare workers, teachers and daycare staff, grocery workers, and those in homeless shelters. Or prisons, among others. Well, the acting FDA uh, commissioner, Janet Woodcock, said last month, this pandemic is dynamic and evolving with new data about vaccine safety and effectiveness becoming available every day. As we learn more about the safety and effectiveness of COVID-19 vaccines, including the use of a booster, uh, booster dose, we'll continue to evaluate the rapidly changing science and keep the public Informed. Now, one of the things I'm noticing is the politicians are sort of leading the charge. The president, and this isn't the first time, he made an announcement uh, before the science or those charged with uh, making these kinds of decisions had said this is in the best interest of the public. So the president made the announcement, forcing the hand of the FDA, who modified what the president had to say, suggesting that only a small portion of the population that meets certain criterion would be eligible for the booster. So I think this the cynicism and skepticism around all of this, you've got politicians, scientists and uh, admixture of both has a lot of people scratching their heads. Will we ever be out of this uh, to the point where we recognize COVID-19 is something that's going around and like the flu and other pandemics, if you will, of the past? Well, guidance is uh, Such a reasonable word, yet when applied to the CDC, skepticism and confusion oftentimes result. Well, the director of the CDC, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, recently announced, as I mentioned, guidance that masks will be advised in schools, even among those who are vaccinated. 
So uh, the advantage of having the vaccine, I, you know, we're told, unless you happen to contract a breakthrough case, that you're not likely to get as sick as you would without the vaccine. But other than that, there is no advantage. You, you have to wear the mask. You have to behave as though you were unvaccinated. And a lot of people are a bit frustrated and disappointed. Dr. Um, Monica Gandhi, who practices in the field of infectious disease at the University of California, San Francisco, said surprised and noted the entire point of the vaccines is to get back to normal. And the CDC really has not been messaging confidence in these vaccines. Not only does the CDC now want to embrace vaccine mandates, but it wants to mandate masks as well, regardless of vaccination status. Well, on Friday, Harvard Health published a following, uh, the following regarding COVID aid to kids, and I'm quoting, children, including very young children, can develop COVID-19. Many of them have no symptoms. Those that do get sick tend to experience milder symptoms such as low-grade fever, fatigue, and cough. Some children have had severe complications, but this has been less common. Children with underlying health conditions may be at increased risk of severe illness. Now, most won't see this uh, logical information because the goal is keeping the pandemic alive and allowing the government to expand and grow instead of equipping citizens to make their own decisions about COVID. Um, Looking at the facts and then asking the real question, is the goal to equip citizens with information to make decisions to navigate COVID or to keep the pandemic alive to allow the government to expand and grow? Now, I'm not anti-vaccination. I have received the vaccine, although I'm skeptical about much of what I've been hearing about the vaccine. Now, immunizations have positively impacted the lives of lots of people for decades, increasing the safety of international travel, growing populations and extending life expectancy. Smallpox, typhoid, uh, tuberculosis and some other devastating diseases have been drastically reduced. Well, this doesn't mean that immunization shouldn't be explained and citizens allowed to make their own informed health care decisions. This is uh, no way to reason with adults. And, in, and enhance their uh, trust in public health and advances in medicine. Uh, so mandates seem to have replaced informed consent, and many are uh, concerned about whether or not that will continue to be the case into the days ahead. Well, something completely different as our time is uh, running out. Sudan's military seized power on Monday after it reportedly arrested the prime minister and dissolved the transitional government. Well, apparently military forces in the country reportedly placed the prime minister under house arrest. They've been urging him to come out in support of the coup. I can't imagine that. But the UMA party, the country's largest political party, called on people to take to the streets to counter the military. This is an unfolding story. Security forces opened fire on some of the crowds, killing two protesters, wounding about 80 people. Indications of a military coup sparked the U.S. embassy in the capital city of Khartoum to urge Americans in the country to shelter in place. Today, moving forward, well, the U.S. Embassy has received reports that armed forces are blocking certain areas in and around Khartoum. Internet in Khartoum is non-functional, the embassy elaborated. And again, this is a, uh, an unfolding story with uh, implications that may be significant. We'll continue to follow that story. Well, coming up, we're going to talk with uh, Ruth. Let me get this right. Rachel Ruth Lots Wright. She is the daughter of Anne Graham Lotz and, of course, the granddaughter of Ruth and Billy Graham. Uh, She, along with her mother, co-authored the book Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. It's not only fascinating to look into the uh, the families and the lifestyle of this iconic um, group, but also some very practical um, ideas for parents who want to pass their faith along to the next generation. That's coming up next right here on The Georgine Rice Show. 
You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, parents and grandparents today are raising what's been called the least religious generation. That's according to Pew Research. Well, what can Christian families do to make sure that their faith is not only lived out in their homes, but received by the next generation? Well, in their first book, Together... Um, Anne Graham Lotz and daughter, uh, who is, of course, the daughter of Billy Graham and her daughter, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, use vivid stories from the Graham and Lotz families as motivating and down to earth examples of how parents and grandparents can effectively pass the baton of truth to the younger generation. Their book, Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. And oh, how desperately parents want to uh, to do just that. Well, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright, she serves on the board of directors for Angel Ministries, in addition to holding the position of ministry teaching associate and chairing the weekly prayer team that undergirds her mother's ministry. A graduate of Baylor University, she teaches an online weekly Bible study that draws thousands of people globally. Co-authored with her mother and Graham Lotz, Jesus Followers is her first book. She and her husband Stephen live in Raleigh, North Carolina with their three daughters, and we're just delighted to have her with us by phone today. Thank you so much for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much for having us. Well, just uh, just delighted. Um, let me ask you, what inspired this book? I mean, obviously, parents and grandparents, as I mentioned, want to pass their faith along to future generations, but I think are less confident than perhaps previous generations in their ability to, to do that with all the competing interests and ideas that are out there. What motivated you to write this book? Well, when my girls were small, they're all older teenagers right now, but when they were young and I was taking them to school or to birthday parties or whatever, I was noticing that the parents that I knew that knew the Lord, I could tell they weren't passing it on to their kids. There there just wasn't any Bible being taught in their homes, and they were leaving it up to the school or to, um, you know, if it was a Christian school or to their church, and, and there was just a disconnect, and it made me so sad. And so I thought, you know, maybe they didn't have an example in their home. Maybe they grew up and didn't have parents or grandparents that set the example of how to pass it on to the next generation. And so maybe they wanted to, but didn't know how. And so mm-hmm. that's why I felt burdened to write this, because by God's grace, I was put in this family with two sets of grandparents that love the Lord and then my parents. And, um, and so I thought, well, I'll just write these stories and maybe give them uh, a bird's eye view and an idea of what it looks like to have a home that, that follows Jesus and how to pass that on. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, oftentimes parents feel like if I don't have a seminary degree, if I don't have a degree in mm-hmm. science, if I am not uh, savvy on the cutting edge of all the cultural changes, then maybe I can't influence my sons and daughters. But the truth is, parents have a significant role to play and uh, should be grateful that God has put them in a position where they can have significant influence if they know how to, to go about it. Yes, that's exactly right. And we we can have such an impact on our kids. And, you know, I feel like the biggest thing that we can do as parents and that I saw my grandparents and parents was they loved the Lord with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They they were authentic. They didn't fake it. They weren't phony you know, they didn't go to church and then come home a different way. Mm-hmm. They lived it. They lived it out in the home, and and so when we show our kids or our grandkids that we genuinely love Jesus and we genuinely love His Word, 
that is contagious. Then, it, then it's like they believe, you know, they can watch you and see what's real in their life. Then it could be real in my life too. And kids can spot a phony from a mile away. And, and so it's so important for us to be for real in our faith, which means, are we, you know, do we love Jesus with all of our hearts? And are we studying our Bibles ourselves and praying and, and, um, and being that example to our kids? Yeah. And what a tremendous treasure this book is for first generation believers mm-hmm. who look to their children and they don't have that heritage that you've just described. But this is a great resource to help. Now, when I was at the University of Oregon, I was on the track team and I was on the relay, mm-hmm. the mile relay and the four by 100. You compare uh-huh. passing your faith to the next generation to a four by 100 uh, relay race. And I get that. Can you explain it to our listeners who maybe haven't had mm-hmm. that baton passed on to them? Yes, well, you would probably explain it better than I could, but just with the relay, when the 4x400, which is what we've always loved to watch, you know, at the Olympics or growing up going to, I used to go to Carolina, University of North Carolina track meets and and seeing them run all the way around the track and they have to pass the baton off to the next person and that person runs all the way around and and, and you have to be careful of how you pass the baton or else they'll drop it, you know, or mess up the race and you lose and and so just that idea of that's what we have. You know, we have our relationship with the Lord. We love the Lord. We read the Bible. We pray. And and it's so important for us to pass it on to the next generation or else it's dropped. It's lost. It's, you know, they're, we're setting them up for failure if we don't teach them um, this wonderful relationship with Jesus. And um, and so that was the whole idea of passing it on to like a baton and um and you know there's a passing zone which you probably could explain mm-hmm. better but if you don't pass it within that passing zone then then you lose and so um i think it's important to pass it within the passing zone and, and a lot of times we can't do that we have grown kids but we think you know when the kids are young and they're in your home that's like the passing zone where where you can invest in them and teach them about god's word and tell them what he's teaching you in your life and and get them excited about Jesus while they're in your home. And and of course the Lord can still work if they're already grown adults and you're and you're just now wanting to tell them about your relationship with Jesus. God can still do that too, but it's much easier in the passing zone, you know. Let's talk about how the book is structured. You have it in four parts and I think it helps uh, parents to recognize the role they can play in uh, passing their faith on to the next generation. Can you explain those four parts, our witness, our worship, and so on? Yes. And so we, um, so my mom wrote the uh, introduction to the book, and that was taken out of Genesis 5, which is the genealogy. It's the part that a lot of people skip over. <laughs> but um, but when you read through the genealogy, you see how, you know, there was Cain and Abel, and then Abel was murdered by his brother Cain, and then there was Seth. And Seth loved the Lord, and then he passed it down, and, and we followed 10 men um, through those generations that passed it on to the next, and the next, and the next, and um, and so Noah was one of them, and, and different men like that, and, and so under each one, it's our witness, our worship, our walk, and our work, and so under those four categories, then I wrote stories um, that would fit the example of what that is, what it is to be a witness and what it is to worship the Lord. And, and so I just wrote practical stories that I saw, you know, in my, both sets of my grandparents or my parents and, and um, what happened in our home just to give people an idea of what that looks like. 
And such beautiful stories they are. Now, we're going to take a break here in a moment, but let me ask you, you touched on this a few moments ago, but I want to emphasize it. Before we can pass on uh, the, the baton to our, our children, the mm-hmm. next generation, what's the first thing that we need to know for ourselves in order for that to, to happen? Yes, you have to have a personal relationship with Jesus yourself. And, and you know, I did when I was about five years old. I was watching an Easter program and that's when I told my mom I wanted to ask Jesus in my heart, and I believed in my in my five year old mind, which is okay. You know, I learned more as I grew, but but um, that Jesus had died on the cross to take away my sins. That He suffered. He was perfect. He was never sinned before. He was the Son of God, and He died on the cross to take away my sins and wash me clean past sins, present sins, future sins, and then He sent the Holy Spirit to come live inside of me, and He's with me always. He guides me. He encourages me. And and um, and so that's when I place my faith in Jesus. And that's what you have to do. You have to have your own personal relationship with Jesus, where there's a time in your life that you actually can pinpoint, this is when I had told Jesus I was sorry for my sins. This is when I asked him to come live inside of me. And um, a lot of times I tell people to write it in their Bibles, you know, write down on this date, this is when I, you know, pray to receive Christ. And, um, and then your walk with the Lord begins, and you get to walk with Him and grow and and build this relationship with Him. But it has to start there. Yeah, and, absolutely. Um, and then you can pass it on. Yes. Well, we are talking this afternoon with the co-author of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. My guest is Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She wrote the book along with her mother, best-selling author of uh, The Jesus in Me and Graham Lotz. We're going to continue our conversation in just a few moments. So stay with us. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. She's the co-author, along with her mother, Anne Graham Lotz, of Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Now, some of our uh, listeners might be tempted to think, look, Billy Graham and Ruth Bell Graham Mm -hmm. were your grandparents. Of course, you you know, the faith uh, faith was passed along to you. Uh, and they don't know much about the Lots side of the family. So let's uh, let's talk a little bit about your paternal grandparents and the role that they played in your faith. Yes, oh, they were wonderful. So my grandpa, my dad's dad was German. My grandmother was Italian, and they were from New York City, and um, and just loved the Lord. My grandfather was a pastor in the worst part of the Bronx in New York, and he was a wrestler in college. He was a big guy, and um, and he loved the people of the Bronx and all actually all of New York City, and he was also one of those guys that would preach on the street corners to anybody who would listen, and he'd get on the subway and share his faith with people on the subway and just so faithfully had such a heart for the city, and my grandmother was uh, hygienist way long before people, women were really working on the workforce like she was, but she was a hygienist on Fifth Avenue. And, um, and so she would work all day, take the subway home and then help my grandfather in his church. And, um, and so they served the people of New York and, um, worked with the homeless people and, um, people, alcoholics and different people like that. And, um, and so they loved the Lord, and they were very bold, very unafraid of speaking about their love for Jesus. And and so I got to see that even in our home. They'd come visit 
I would see my grandpa sitting over his Bible with a magnifying glass because he couldn't see good. And he would just sit there and read and read and read for hours. He'd have me read the Bible to him out loud. And, and, um, and so I just saw this deep love for the Lord and really a sacrifice for their lives to, to live in harsh circumstances and, and deal with people that were really hurting and struggling, but they loved it because they loved Jesus. How would you say, um, let's stay with your, um, your paternal grandparents. Um, how would you say they, their example influenced you as a young woman? I feel like they influenced me because like my, my other set of grandparents, like my parents, it was their genuine love for the Lord that they were willing to give up everything to follow him, to serve him and, um, and live that example. In fact, there's a story I wrote about in the book of um, my dad. He was a star basketball player. He's this great basketball player, and he made the varsity team his freshman year in high school. And he was so excited. He came home to tell my grandpa that he had made the varsity team. He had his first start on that Friday, coming Friday night. And my grandpa said, you can't go play in that basketball game. We have to be down at the Bowery Mission. You have to play the trumpet before I preach. And my dad always played the trumpet at this mission place that is still in New York City today. And um, and my dad was so upset to have to miss his first varsity game that he was going to start in. But but he always did that. He always played the trumpet down there. And and my grandfather, after they went down there, my grandpa preached. My dad played the trumpet. And knew, my dad knew he had missed the game. Grandpa in the car told my dad, he said, Daniel, he said, you have to seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek the Lord first, and then all these things will be added unto you. And my dad went on to start all four years in high school. He went on a full scholarship to the University of North Carolina to play basketball, was um, in the Olympic tryouts, and um, and just won the national championship at Carolina um, against Wilt Chamberlain. And so God really did give back all these things to my dad when he, when he gave it up. And, and I just commend my grandfather for taking such a stand when sports has become such a God yes. in our, in our country right now. And, and I really struggled with that because I have a daughter that was a star goalie, a soccer goalie. And, and we were gone on Sundays a lot of times and traveling and doing these um, tournaments. And I just remember my grandfather and just his strong stance for the Lord and even when it came to sports. And, um, and so it made such an impact on me, and I'm so grateful for that. And um, so that's one, one example. Well, you share some funny and some heartwarming stories in Jesus Followers, as well as some hard things like the death of your father. Um, How did you select which stories to include? Obviously, you have different subject headings, but how did you select which stories to share in the in the book? Well, it was actually very simple. I I started writing this when the quarantine hit. So the Lord was so good because he gave me time. But um, every morning I would get up and just pray, okay, Lord, bring the story to mind that you want me to write. What is it that you want me to write? And he always did every morning. And and so then I would just write the memory. I would write down what I remembered about that story. And, and, um, and so that's how God did it. And I feel like, so I actually feel like these stories in this book, I feel like it's from the Lord. And I feel like this is a message that the Lord is just using me as a mouthpiece 
um, of the family that he put me in to show other people, to point them on how to pass it on to that next generation. And, um, and there's all kinds of stories in there that um, hopefully keep you entertained. I mean, I've got ADHD, and so <laughs> I have to have stories to keep me entertained. And so hopefully this is um, this is this will be something like that. I think it's a, it should be a page turner for you. Oh, I absolutely agree. I think it's fascinating. And I think there's a tremendous curiosity. You know, what's this, what are you, third generation away from your grandparents on your mother's mm-hmm. side? Um, you know, what what does this young woman remember about the legacy of her grandparents that we think that we know personally because they have been yeah. so beloved for so long? Is there a favorite story you can share with us? There's one um, that I I just love because it meant so much to me was a story that my dad about my dad and it was on grace and. My sister and I had gotten in an argument. I think I was probably about eight years old, and we had gotten in some kind of argument. And so she was chasing me through the house. I ran through the house, and I slammed the glass door on her, and it busted. I heard it just crackling and falling on the ground. So I just ran as fast as I could, hit my mom's station wagon. And, uh, you know, a while later, I heard my mom coming out yelling my name. And so I got out, and she sent me to my room, and I just knew I was going to get it. You know, I knew I was going to get punished. And and um and I heard my dad coming up the stairs and and he came in and he sat down on my bed and and he looked at me and he said Rach he said he called me Rach and he was like Rach you deserve to be punished for what you did and he said but instead I'm gonna teach you about grace today and I'm gonna take you to get some ice cream and I was like what I, I couldn't <laughs> even believe it and um and then he told me about the grace that God gave us on the cross you know and. He sent his son, like I was saying earlier, to die on the cross to take away our sins. And even though we deserve to be punished for our sins, um, God, Jesus, you know, shed his blood to cover them and and to give us that right relationship with God, restore a right relationship with us with God. And and so I've never forgotten that. It just gave such a picture to me of God's grace. And, um, and so I've got that story in there. I've got stories about my grandfather and how he he would give us his full attention. We called him Daddy Bill, and Daddy Bill would give us his full attention, even though he's this busy, busy evangelist, always traveling and everything. Whenever I walked in the room, it was like I was the only person, and he would sit there and talk with me and pray with me, um, you know, over whatever was concerning me at that time. And um, and my grandmother really spoke into me when I was in high school, really struggling with um, just being insecure and having a lot of mean friends. And, and my grandmother used to write me letters and encourage me and give me scripture. And oh, I could go on and on, but there's just um, so many that um, meant a lot to me. Yeah. Well, the good news is the book, Jesus Followers, is full of stories that will encourage, inspire and help um parents, I think, to understand the significant opportunities they have in raising a family Mm -hmm. to minister to and to convey the gospel. Once again, the book is titled Jesus Followers, Real Life Lessons for Igniting Faith in the Next Generation. Um, Rachel Ruth, thank you so much for talking with us today and for the book. Mm -hmm. I know you're the mother of three daughters, and so you're walking this out. And I think Mm -hmm. many of our listeners today will be blessed by the stories of your family that will encourage and help shape their own. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Such a, such a sweet, uh, sweet book. And then it's uh, at the very beginning, uh, Genesis seventeen seven. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you 
and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. Now, this was written, of course, to that first generation family uh, of, of believers as God was preparing his plan that would be unfolded some many years um, in the future. But nonetheless, be encouraged. You can have a significant impact in raising your sons and daughters and passing your faith along to them. And this is a great book to help you do just that. Again, Jesus Followers. The book is published by Multnomah, so check it out. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Just want to remind you that tomorrow we'll be talking with Eric Metaxas. We had to reschedule a conversation that was uh, planned for last week, but he's going to join me in studio. Well, not in studio. He's going to join me by phone. I wish he was in studio. Uh, that'll be tomorrow. So if you were looking forward to that conversation last week, behold, it has come. Or it soon will come. Anyway, his latest book is, Is Atheism Dead? He'll be with us, uh, I believe, in the first hour of tomorrow's program. So heads up on that. Also on Thursday, we'll talk with Laura Harris-Smith. She's the author of Give It to God and Go to Bed. Stress less, sleep better, dream more. That's coming up on Thursday. I want to let you know that the singing Christmas tree... Yes, it's going to be live and in person this year. You can win tickets to see Portland Singing Christmas Tree. The 59th year holiday tradition will be performing six times at Sunset Presbyterian Church, November 27th through December 5th. Beautiful facility and just thrilled that it's going to be a live performance this year. Uh, I have the opportunity to be one of the soloists along with former Miss America Katie Harmon, although I can hardly believe I said both of those things in the same sentence. Timothy Greenwich will be there uh, again. Uh, there will be six performances November 27th through December 5th. Now through Friday, October 31st, you can enter to win a family four pack of tickets at kpdq.com. Also more details about the show at kpdq.com. So check that out. It's going to be a good Good time together. Well, for some of you, Ralph Carmichael is not a name that you're familiar with. But for those of us who have been around for a while, we recall that he was a composer and he fought for freedom in Christian music. He was the founder of Light Records. He arranged for Nat King Cole, for Duke Ellington, for Elvis Presley. He scored The Blob, you know, the movie. He developed folk musicals. He discovered Andre Crouch, which, you know, he should have gotten some kind of award for that and believed any style could glorify God. Now, we can have a discussion on that, but nonetheless, Ralph Carmichael, the composer and record producer who shaped the sound of contemporary Christian music, died on the 18th of this month. He was 94. He was a violin prodigy with perfect pitch. That means you can say E and he would be able to just E just where it belongs. Not flat, not sharp, not a couple of notes too high or too low. So he had perfect pitch and a love for jazz chords. He uh, built a reputation in Los Angeles television and film studios before turning to Christian music and throwing open the doors for a new generation to use any and every style to sing about Jesus. Now, when he recorded his uh, best-known song, He's Everything to Me, uh, featured on the Billy Graham Worldwide Picture Production, The Restless Ones, he brought two guitars, an electric bass, and drums into the studio and kicked off a firestorm of controversy. Now, try to think back, if you will, the fact that he had two guitars, an electric bass, and drums 
created a firestorm of controversy. That's where it started. Well, he featured the new sound in several popular youth musicals and later established Light Records as a label for rising uh, contemporary Christian artists. What I have been doing most of my adult life, he told the Christian Herald back in 1986, is waging stubborn battle for the freedom and liberty to experiment with different kinds of music for the glory of God. When tributes poured in near the end of his life, many called uh, Carmichael, rather, the father of contemporary Christian music. So you can either rejoice and celebrate him for that fact, or you can uh, get your pitchforks. Uh, Anyway, it's a title he sometimes shared with the Christian rocker Larry Norman, despite their obvious differences in style. Well, Carmichael, for his part, didn't buy into um, honorific titles or strictly uh, defined music genres. He said, I want neither credit nor blame for creating today's musical forms. He told uh, Christianity Today in an interview some time back. I ask only for guidance to know how to use them in good taste to reach now people with a message that never changes. His now music would borrow from any style, pop, jazz, country, rock, all packaged with slick arrangements that sounded good on radio and television. And despite these commercial roots, his music began uh, became popular rather uh, in evangelical worship services and influenced a rising generation of Christian Christian music artists. I remember growing up going to my church in Canova, West Virginia, and singing the music of Ralph Carmichael. That's what Michael W. Smith told, uh, told Christianity Today this week. He said, I sang in the New Generation Choir every Sunday night, and I just had not uh, heard anything like it. He brought a fresh new sound to the 1970s that literally changed my life. Well, Carmichael was born in Quincy, Illinois in 1927. His father, an ordained Assemblies of God minister, noted that Ralph's precocious affinity for music and started him on violin lessons at age three. When his father took a church in San Jose, California, Ralph joined the local orchestra while still in high school. Insatiably curious about music theory, he often listened to radio orchestras while sitting at the piano, picking out the notes they played. Immediately, he noticed a different sound than conventional hymnal uh, harmony, chords that uh, flatted fifths and ninth uh, jazz progressions that he taught himself to play. At 17, he er- enrolled at the Southern California Bible College, intending to become a preacher like his father and grandfather. Within a few weeks, he was organizing music groups to minister at local churches, a passion that soon overshadowed his studies. Classmates noticed his keen ear. As I mentioned, he has a perfect pitch. The music faculty tried to correct his wrong notes, but Carmichael persisted, and his 17-piece stage band began playing on a local television station. Well, the television show earned an Emmy in 1951, and suddenly he was very busy. Two Christian record labels were uh, starting in Los Angeles. Um, It was Sacred Records and Alma Records. Both needed music arrangements, and Carmichael also joined the staff of Temple Baptist in Los Angeles, Despite his Pentecostal roots, he was ordained a Baptist minister. Well, in those days, he said later, I would work for anybody who could afford me, regardless of their denominational affiliation, so long as they named the name of Jesus. Well, the rest is history that some of you may be familiar with, others not so much. But at 94, he has certainly left a legacy in music. Um, Near the end of his life, he donated his music library to the Great American Songbook Archives, Baylor University and the University of Arizona Jazz and Popular Music Archive. He was inducted into the Gospel Music Hall of Fame and the National Religious Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And he is survived by his wife, Marvella, children, Andrea, Greg and Aaron and several grandchildren and great grandchildren. At 94, that um, composer who changed Christian music, Ralph Carmichael, has gone home to be with the Lord at 94. 
Well, we are out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Justin Mansfield for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.